0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to the class on Romans today. We'll do chapter four of Romans. And I'll just briefly introduce the chapter and I think what are perhaps the main themes or main ideas. At least I want to hit some of the key points. I think that Frazier's article has profound insight into a kind of paradigm that in chapter 4 links the book of Romans together. So I see Romans 4 as the chapter around which the the book coheres. It's in the faith of Abraham that we come to understand the universal nature of salvation. That is that thanatology or the problem of death, this is the thing that has people in its grip And so it is our orientation to death. And this might be said in any number of ways, you know, a kind of living death. I think this is really what idolatry is. I think that it gets at the deep psychological problem, but it's also the human religious problem. I think that this orientation shows up then in just the human project. And so when we say universal, we mean this term in two ways that it applies universally, like to an individual. That is, this has to do with everything about a person, but it also is universal in the sense that it applies to all people. And so the problem here, as it's understood and posed in death, is not simply mortality. It's not just that people die at the end of their life, but it has to do with the way that they live their life, as Frazier will call it, death denial. I'm always hesitant, I'm always thinking that is probably an inadequate way to put it, because it may convey some sort of conscious denial. But I think that, you know, this is what you get in psychoanalytic literature, it's what you get in religion, that it's not that people go around saying, oh, I'm not going to die, but in some way that they resolve this problem, or they live in such a way that this reality is is not faced. And so it's this, I think it's in this understanding that we're to read the life course of Abraham. And when we talk about Abraham having faith, it means that he has faith, it's made possible in his human circumstance. That is that we often picture the obstacles, his childlessness, his old age, and all of these things as obstacles to Abraham's faith. Well, those are not simply obstacles, but those are the condition, right, that is recognizing his incapacity for propagating his own name. As in, you know, uh, And, of course, at this point in history, even the idea of life after death may not be there. But what that would consist of is that in and through having a child, that, this would be the way that his name would continue or that he himself would continue. And so his childlessness directly relates to his own eternality or his own status. And this is very much connected with the issue of shame, that in the Old Testament there's no worse condition than to be a childless widow or to be incapable of bearing children, that this is a kind of living shame, that you're living in the face of your own end. And, of course, the idea of any kind of being bound or bondage. That All of these then relate to the problem of death as a kind of oppression that's put upon us, the death drive in Freud or the death instinct. And so if Abraham's faith is directly related to our understanding that his faith is over and against this predicament. Now, in saying all this, we don't want to reduce faith to simply a negation of something, but rather it it is to enter into a fullness of life. And so as we enter into the fourth chapter, we have to remember where Paul has been, that he's described that the human predicament faces his all. In in chapter three, he's already been through describing that this pertains to human death, speech, the the lips, the mouth, the tongue, that and somewhat we take death up into ourselves. And so what counters this, what he's described as a kind of death-dealing lie, is reversed in the life course of Abraham. So we might say that uh, his journey into death, that is, he leaves his home, his country, he goes into a land that he does not know. That is, in all of the means that he would have that we see there in the people of babel of propagating themselves i mean this is the babel project and we can see you know that chapter 12 in genesis comes right after chapter 11 because abraham is called out of this sort of people these people who would make their own name great who would propagate their own name who would in some way storm the heavens who would trust in their own human language. So redemption is a shift in trusting in God and God's Word, the promises of God. You know, and this is the image in both baptism. It's there in the Lord's Supper. I think that this is the sacraments of the church, that life, eternal life, and death must be grasped together. That's a profound psychological insight, certainly, that Our flight from death is undone. This, then, ironically, is what keeps us from entering in fully into life, the way that this is put in the psychoanalytic literature, that you traverse the fantasy. That is, that we all have this fantasy that we put this thing up, we throw this thing up, that we're, as the serpent says in Genesis, that we won't die, that we're like gods. And in some way, we live life, with this covenant, what Isaiah calls the covenant with death. So we might see the life of Abraham as annulling the covenant with death. This is the sense, you know, is Abraham a Jew? Well, no, Abraham is called from out of these people, the Babylonites, or he is the father of the Jews, and his faith then precedes the law. It precedes, it is the foundation, the, the very reason for the law. So the covenant that God makes with Abraham, Abraham is in that sense representative of all of those things that will be brought into place through Christ. That the faith that we have in Christ is the realization of the fullness of the faith of Abraham. So that God's promise in the face of shame and death at the end of this chapter is undone. And he says this is the faith that Abraham has, is resurrection faith. but It's death acceptance as opposed to death resistance. So what is faith? It's the faith of Abraham. Even Christian faith is the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham then is resurrection faith. All of that makes sense. It's a very specific thing when we understand what sin is. This addresses the deep-seated problem of sin, there's an exact equation between Abraham's belief, that is his belief, his faith, is his death acceptance. You can't separate these two things. It's not that he had faith, accepted death, and demonstrated it. His death acceptance was his faith. So think, what is faith? We often, you know, this is the problem in Calvinism, but I think it's the problem in many systems. A thing like baptism, where you you know, you're buried, and then you're raised again. There we see the, the movement is a singular movement, but the movement of baptism is faith. That is the thing that we're to live out. I mean, it happens in baptism, but then we live it out. He's described here as, as, as good as dead because of his old age, because of his childlessness, because of homelessness, but that's the human condition that we're all in this condition, if we get it right. And the danger is, of course, if we imagine innate immortality as the case, that we're just made as a little piece of God, as it was put to me at one point by a Bible college professor. Well, then that, that makes no sense of the faith of Abraham or the New Testament faith. That is that the human problem is summed up by death, and we're not able to see the problem. We're not able to articulate it, get at it. And what we get in the life of Abraham is here, it is obvious what his problem is. That death, then, is the thing that he enters into and accepts in his childlessness, in leaving his home and country. And by trusting in God in the face of death, this is resurrection faith, this then undoes the fear of, the threat of death, that life comes from God, it doesn't come from Sarah's womb, it doesn't come from Abraham's ability to propagate himself. You know, we can think here, of I think this relates to circumcision, actually, that what is being said in circumcision is that the recognition is that true life is propagated by God in the mark of circumcision, is to say that even from that place that we might imagine we could propagate ourselves through children, we recognize that, no, through covenant with God, that he's the one. Though we might be as good as dead, that God propagates life. And so what he endured was linked organically with the inherent demands of faith on the one hand and the bondage of sin on the other. These things aren't so much obstacles as they are bringing out then the reality of the human condition. And Isaiah is the passage that Paul, the Messianic passage that Paul will reference many times. It's right after this description, you know, the covenant with death, that then the Messianic passage that he who trusts in him will not be put to shame. That is, that those who make this covenant with death imagine that they can in some way save themselves, they will be subject to shame and death. There is an exposure of this lie. There is the picture then in Abraham that is reduplicated in the life of Christ, that just as Abraham walks into death, that Christ walks into the jaws of death in Jerusalem. That's a way of reading. The passion narrative is picturing Jesus' own walk, and then the disciples walk into death, that they're able then to face down the principalities and powers, because this is precisely the power that they exercise, is the power of death. In the the passage here, and this is obvious that the argument that Paul is making does not include the sacrifice of Isaac, which would have fit his argument perfectly, you know, that he uh, was even willing to give up his only son. But the reason probably is that the event of The sacrifice of Isaac actually comes after the name change, circumcision, these things. And so Paul's argument in this chapter is that the faith of Abraham precedes the law. It is the purpose of the law. It's what the law marks out. So he was credited with righteousness, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so the law is secondary. It's not primary. The law is a marker of the faith. It's not itself the promise, but it's a seal or a sign of the promise. This is the huge mistake, and it's not to say that Jews don't make this mistake, but this is not the mistake of Scripture. This is the the mistaken reading of Scripture that both Christians and Jews may put on on Scripture, and that is to imagine that at some point in the Bible it says that life is found in the law. That's the way that people are going to misread chapter 7, but this is precisely the lie that Paul is refuting. If we read four right, we can read seven right, and so the idea of thanatological catholicity is captured here. Sin is a kind of death resistance, and this this needs to be, you know, fleshed out and talked about, and and it can be described in many ways, and so some of this language may be inadequate the way in which it might be inadequate i'll go ahead and point out you know that well doesn't a good samurai accept death or a good buddhist well that's precisely the sort of thing that it's not really facing up to the reality of death i think this meaning here this death acceptance gets at it's not just a willingness to die many people are willing to die but it's the capacity to understand the reality of the human condition, and then in this kind of impossible situation, because what you get in Buddhism and other things is to say that death is just a passage to life, that death is not real, that it's a crossing the river or and that, that will be true in many religions, that it's a, an entire system of death denial in which dying is an easy thing because death doesn't amount to anything. But in Scripture, two things are happening here. Death is really a problem. It's entering in. It's the last enemy in the description of the Bible. And so you have to f- focus on both things, what that does it. Puts the focus too on the reality of human mortality. Not say that mortality per se is the problem, but that that is the human condition. If you think back to Genesis, that how do we have eternal life? Well, it's through in and through the presence of God in the tree of life. That humans are created, they're creatures, given, granted life through the presence of God. But it's not granted naturally. It's granted. Through divine intervention. And I think this is what it means to be both created, physical creatures, and to be spiritual. That we have to recognize we're not little pieces of God, nor are we simply animals, but these two things come together, but they come together properly only when we recognize it comes about through the presence of God, through the work of God, through a relationship to God. What makes Christianity universal? Well, at least part of the answer here. And this isn't the full answer, but the part of the answer is because of the, the thanatological problem. This is not something you have to work out that people recognize this, that they're under a kind of bondage. Christianity is always addressing in, in a very specific way. In other words, it's not, it's universal in the deep grammar, but you may have to work that out in the particular situation in which you're in. That may be different, different cultures, different contexts, that we can understand the bondage is universal, but it may in fact manifest itself in different ways. And so too, it may be that the answer to that bondage is universal, but it will specifically be apprehended in the context that people are in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at Patreon.com/PaulAxton, or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/donate.